Coming up in this episode. So the nerves we see regenerate are the original nerves because we, we, we tag them with a dye so we don't see them being replaced. So we can say, yeah, they're not being replaced by stem cells. And in the case of the old eye, we're not damaging anything. This is just natural aging. And there we can reprogram those retinas. Those retinas don't look any different. They haven't changed. They haven't multiplied. There are no new cells. But the nerve cells now, we put an electrode in the back of the eye. And those nerves are now functioning with electrical signals like they were young again. And then we test the vision of the mice and they can see again. Welcome to the HVMN podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health via Modern Nutrition. Welcome to this week's episode of the HVMN podcast. And I'm super excited to have Professor David Sinclair on the program this week. You've probably seen his work as the best-selling author of Lifespan, but beyond being a book author, and if you've been tracking the space of aging and gerontology, you've probably seen his work over the last two, three decades, really pushing and being involved in some of the most interesting discoveries in aging. So thank you for taking the time to be on this program. Well, Jeff, it's great to be on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So as we are preparing some of the trajectory of this conversation, I think when your book first came out, it really drew my attention in terms of just seeing what is at really the cutting edge of aging. And I think it's rare in today's setting of academia to have, you know, super credentialed folks really pushing, I would say, the limits of what is possible. So I think from that perspective, I think it's commendable to be throwing out, you know, I'll say like novel theories, right? I think the key insight that, or, and I think your lifespan covered a number of topics, but I think the key insight was really describing a unified theory of aging called information theory of aging. So curious to hear from your perspective in the, the risk reward assessment as you're developing this book, as you're coming up with this theory, uh, putting this all out there. Yeah, well, you know, I've never been known for for being shy or not taking risks. I believe life is short and we all have that problem. And the faster we can figure this stuff out, the better for all of us. Um, and, you know, there's no point in us realizing at the end of our lives we were born one or two generations too early to reap the benefit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm in a rush. I, I, I want the world to reach the place that I know it's going to reach, a world that's as different today as we are from 100 years ago in terms of medicine. Uh, and so, yeah, it was an interesting journey. I, I like to push boundaries scientifically. I think that, you know, I've, I've read a lot of scientific history and no theory lasts forever except maybe the second law of thermodynamics. And really, we're just humans trying to figure this stuff out. And the more dialogue, discourse, new ideas, you know, testing those ideas, the better, right? That's how progress is made. Unfortunately, scientists being scientists tend not to like chaos. They don't like theories to be challenged because that's usually their livelihood, which is fair enough. But, you know, I'm, I'm open to new ideas all the time, and that's the way I run things. So I'm also uh, not afraid to speak my mind, and if I've got a new idea, I'll put it out there. It does upset some of my, co some of my colleagues, but, you know, so be it. The, um, the other thing that I do, which definitely upsets my colleagues, is I speak directly to the public, and uh, I've been doing that my whole career. And I, I feel very strongly about that. The research that's in my lab, in a big lab behind me here, about 30 of us, um, that's mostly paid for by the public out of taxes. So how arrogant would that be for myself and my colleagues to learn what we learn 
even personally benefit from that and not tell the public what we're doing. And I'm excited, Jeff, that we live in an age where people like you, God bless you, are able to allow scientists like me, who normally would be in an ivory tower talking to their colleagues only, because we're afraid of newspapers who typically distort the work, finally we talk to the public. Now, there's public that doesn't care about science and they'd rather just hear about fashion and whatever, that's fine. But there's a growing number of people who want to hear directly from the scientist's mouth about what they think is the best. And it's a great world, I think, that we live in right now. Yeah, and I think if you think about what science is, it's a pursuit of truth. So I think almost in some ways, you're really practicing the core intent of science, which is finding what is true and then testing those hypotheses against observations. And if it's something that is true, then one shouldn't be afraid to stand to scrutiny and, and questions. And I think if everyone's debating in good faith, I mean, you get to the truth faster. I think broadly the internet with the decentralization of information, I think that's probably accelerated progress because more and more people can engage on these ideas and these topics. No doubt. And I'll, I'll get to writing the book and the information theory in a yeah. minute, but this is a really interesting thing that, that I'm very passionate about, which is that we've gone from a world 10 years ago where the journals would essentially ban you from a journal if you talked about work before they published it, to a world where now you can put your work out there for the world to see and all your colleagues to see, sometimes a year or two in advance of them being published. And the cart now is, well, actually the horses are now where they belong in front of the cart. And it's really liberating. And I think it's a world that had a long time coming. History of scientific research was that the journals dominated and controlled the path of science and they were the gatekeepers. Um, it's not so much that way anymore. And uh, we scientists can give our work to the public for scrutiny very rapidly, you know, overnight. We can put it online. Millions of people can look at it, argue over it, debate it. You know, as long as you recognize that peer review is still important because we have to vet the science through experts. But I love a world where we can have ideas and have experts from all sorts of fields look at work uh, a year or two in advance of when they otherwise would have seen it. Yeah, that seems directionally true as we just progressing in terms of speed and just I think the cross like interdisciplinary nature of a lot of this work, right? I think some of the work that you described with, you know, an epigenetic clock or the Horvath clock, that's incorporating a lot of data science and statistical modeling to biology. I think that's an exciting future. And I think that leads a nice segue into the information theory of aging. So as I might have referenced to you, my background is a computer scientist, and I actually specialize in information and information theory. So it was really interesting to see you being inspired or taking some of the concepts that Claude Shannon, who uh, was a MIT professor and you know invented the field of information theory, and some of the observers in different ways that state is held and how that's applied to biology. At least from how I read the book, it seemed like a recent paper reversing aging in nerve cells in eyes. Eye, uh, the, the, like really was the evidence or data that inspired the sort of observer theory and the information theory. I'm curious from your perspective, how did all these things come together? Because I think Many of our listeners have probably heard of like the different various hallmarks of aging. I think people understand that there's some notion of genetic damage, epigenetic damage, but I think the articulation that you have, which defines sort of a primal root cause of all the downstream effects of aging is 
is, is quite novel, right? It's like the first time I've heard that articulated in such a primal way. Well, actually, the theory began when I was uh, 26 years old. I'm now 50. So it, it wasn't just last year that I came up with this idea, but it's been evolving um, over time. And um, I've been wanting to write down the theory in a scientific journal in a formal way, uh, but I've just been too busy um, working on the science out there in the lab and doing other things. It turns out just through lack of time that the book was the best way for me to express my ideas. And it's unusual. We were talking uh, before we went on air about how rare it is that a scientist puts their work out in public, their theory um, in a book before it's actually totally crystallized and written down in a scientific paper and, and read it. And that's just how history happened in my case. But the idea has began really with yeast cells. We were studying yeast cells and the silent information regulators, these sur proteins that we've been working on. That word information has been there since the beginning, uh, going back 25 years ago. And how is information tied into aging itself? Well, in yeast, it didn't take long to figure out that epigenetic changes, as we call them, the noise, of informational noise was the cause of aging a major cause of aging in yeast. But it's taken us, oh, the better part of two decades to test, to understand whether that was true for us. And while you can do a yeast experiment in a week, a mouse experiment, the ones that we just put up online, not the reprogramming one, but a couple of others, they took us 10 years, those two papers. And I felt like we were at a point where we had enough evidence from our research and, and increasingly other people who are working in this area, that this hypothesis was going to come out anyway, kind of like Charles Darwin would have gotten scooped if he hadn't written Origin of the Species, so he rushed it out. The same thing was happening to me. I spent 10 years going, ha ha, no one else is uh, thinking this way in terms of information. But then the epigenome exploded in, in the aging field. The Horvath clock, the epigenetic clock came out. And I thought, well, I'd better get this out or you know, I'll really regret it for the rest of my life. And so it all spilled out on the pages quite beautifully, I think, thanks to my co-author, who's a really great writer. Um, and together we produced something that was far better than we could have produced alone. But what I've been very encouraged by is the reaction of, of my colleagues, that for many of them, it just makes perfect sense. If you distill down biology to its essence and ask, why don't organisms live forever? Why isn't life permanent? It's got to be information loss. There's nothing else it could be. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense in terms of a lot of analogies that people make on biological constructs, right? One can make the analogy that we are evolution algorithm for biological information that's fit for survival or, or through natural selection. And I think, what is that? I mean, it's an encapsulation and dissemination of information, right? Um, so I think one thing that I think is especially compelling about this theory is that you're making an interesting claim around this existence of an observer that stores a youthful epigenetic state, one, and then two, if you could reverse an aging cell back to the epigenetic state, can you arrest aging? Can you reverse aging? I think that's probably the, the most important, most compelling, testable hypothesis that your theory would predict, right? If you're going from a scientific method, this is a theory, a hypothesis, and there's some smoking evidence around that this can be done. And I think 
what would really nail the coffin here is describing exactly the mechanism of how this observer works. And I think that is, I think, probably the most exciting, most novel part of the book for, for me. And it seemed like it was just at the cutting edge of what was known because just like looking at some of the surrounding literature, this was really just at the bleeding edge when the book came out, in, I think in September, this was really at the cutting edge of what was even known. So I guess if science is moving really quickly, anything to update or tease at over the last couple months in a mechanism or testable hypotheses of how this might be implemented in our genome. Oh, right. So there are three papers that we're revising now. Two are at Cell and one is is at uh, Nature. And they'll probably come out next year. And I was actually worried that by publishing the book, I was going to scoop myself, which is not what you want to do for us as a scientist. But it seems to be fine. The journals are happy with it. But those studies even though they took a long time, some of them 10 years, as I mentioned, the pace of research now uh, has exploded. We, we can now look at the epigenome in four dimensions very quickly. Uh, millions of data points coming in every day into the lab. We've had to build our own servers just to not just analyze it, but, but store the information. And we've got bioinformaticians in the lab that are working on a whole range of, of things. And so what, what's happening in the lab is that every day I come in when I'm not traveling and there's some new exciting development. So we first made the, well, let me take one step back. We, we first showed that aging is likely to be the loss of epigenetic information um, in yeast going back 20 years ago. But we, we really had no sense that this was true in terms of cause and effect in mammals. And so we, we took a mouse, we engineered a mouse strain where we could disrupt the epigenome. And if we were right, well, let's start with if we were wrong, lots of bad things could have happened. The mouse could have died, the mice could have gotten contracted cancer, and it's possible nothing happened if you disrupt the epigenome, no big deal. And I, I think there's, you know, most people would have said there's a one in a thousand chance that you'll get what you're looking for, which is aging. Uh, but that's what we got. We got aging in these mice, which was pretty good result. And when you surprise yourself how good it looks, it's usually you're on the right track. But what that said was we had to think differently about our our wheel of fortune, these hallmarks of aging. Now, I'm not coming out and saying the hallmarks are wrong, not by any means. But what I'm saying is that just having a laundry list of problems doesn't explain why things occur in the first place. Right. So it's not a full unified theory. Right. There are secondary symptoms of aging, right? And I think what you're describing is a primal singular cause, which I think is interesting. Yeah, that's really what every field is hoping for is not just a list, but a, a real cause. You, you could distill down aging into an equation if this information theory is right. But what's exciting is that this mouse where we disrupted the epigenome, it didn't just get to look old and it didn't just get diseases of aging. These hallmarks of aging also occurred. So loss of mitochondria, mitochondrial function, loss of stem cells, inflammation, senescent cells, all of these hallmarks occurred. So that tells you likely that the epigenome is what I would say is upstream, is the dam upstream and these others are tributaries, which is pretty exciting. But what that also meant was that this, the field that was really just focusing on longevity genes to slow one or more of these hallmarks. That's what we've been doing for the last 20 years. My lab certainly is involved in that through activation of sirtuins. 
What it also said was that if epigenetic change and noise is the upstream cause, then if we address that and reverse it, all these other symptoms of aging, hallmarks and diseases should either be prevented or if we're really lucky can be reversed. So we didn't know if there was an observer, which you can also refer to, we refer to as the backup hard drive of the youthful information in the cell. We didn't know there was such a thing. But in 2014, I became very interested in Claude Shannon's work, and I read all of it, some of the most beautiful papers I've ever read. And I was trying to find the observer. And so we were giving cells uh, a whole bunch of factors that we thought might reverse their age by tapping into the observer. We didn't know where the observer was, if it existed. We killed a lot of cells. But we had a breakthrough about two years ago where we put in a set of three genes. And it looked like we managed to find the zip code of the observer. And the observer woke up and reset the age of the cells. And when we did it in the mouse, it reset the age of the mouse. And old mice that lost their vision got their complete vision back again. Uh, and that's the paper that we posted online a couple of months ago. So this is the Yamanaka factors, and this is the paper published on BioArchive around, yeah, re essentially restoring vision of crushed nerve cells and induced glaucoma, you're able to reverse those, essentially those disease states that are associated with aging. And, and aging itself. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then I think the third arm was aging itself. So I wanted to get your thoughts on alternate explanations, right? Because I think there's two parts that I want to explore. One is this could be described with an observer. And then if that is the case, then what would be the mechanism of action? I think you referenced potentially something with methylation, but that seems to be maybe probably not complete or overly simple. And I think there's been more and more research around, I think you recently posted or shared a paper on Twitter about lactylation. I know that there's acetylation, and then I know there's colleagues uh, and friends that are looking at beta-hydroxybutyrylation, where beta-hydroxybutyrate actually binds in and affects gene expression as well. So it seems like there's more and more new science around how the epigenome is actually uh, modified. So do you have some sense of describing that mechanism that would be the observer? And then the second part of the question is, I think where my mind goes is that, is there explanation that this also describes the behavior that you saw that doesn't require the observer, right? I think that's an open question, or maybe you have some better results or data that suggests why this can't be explained without an observer. That These are really good questions. So the first is about how complex is the, the man behind the curtain, the, the machine behind the clock. And there's no doubt that it involves more than DNA methylation, but you have to start somewhere. And we've only been working on this for a couple of years now, but we are I've gone from a lab with uh, just one person in my lab working on reprogramming to now probably most of the people in my lab work on it. So we're working really hard. One thing that, that's interesting is so we can measure DNA methylation age of the animal and the, and the cells, the neurons in the eye. And we could see that the Yamanaka factors, three of them, three that are seemingly safe. We're, we're looking at mice today. We found that in terms of an update, you're asking me, we, we find that these Yamanaka factors, the way we deliver them and the combination doesn't cause cancer, doesn't have any untoward effects in the animals, even if we look very carefully histologically, which is great news. That's that's hot off the press. 
But um, to your point, the machine is complex. But the reason that I'm excited about the DNA methylation clock is because I think that it's a very deep layer of aging. We can change superficial things. For example, we can go for a run today and change some transcription factors and change gene expression. But that's not permanent. That's just going to change temporarily your cells and they'll take up more glucose, et cetera. There's a deeper level where we've been working on some epigenetic factors such as sirtuins and trying to activate them. But even then, if you stop giving these molecules that activate the system, the animal will revert back to being healthier and, and maybe longer lived. But it's not that you've really reset the clock. You just made things a little bit more youthful looking. Right. But the deep layer is the actual information that tells you your age and how cells really understand what type of cell they are and how old they are. And we think that this is partly driven by DNA methylation. But we thought up until our paper that the methylation age, these chemical marks on the DNA, were an indicator of biological age. They were just basically the, the crust on the genome, the plaque on your teeth, so to speak. You know, plaque doesn't do much, right? It's just accumulating. Same we thought about the methyls. But what we decided to do was to knock down or knock out, we've done it both ways, uh, a set of genes called TETs, T-E-T. And there are three of them. And if we got rid of at least number one or number two, we haven't studied three yet, uh, we didn't get the vision restoration and we didn't get the clock reversal. Mm. So what does that say? These enzymes are the enzymes that remove the methyl off the DNA, the pick that removes the plaque off your teeth. If you don't have plaque remover, you don't get shiny teeth anymore and you don't get to look younger. Uh, your dentist can't do a good job. So that's what we've, the results are telling us is that part of the reset of the clock, it's not just an indicator of age, as if you move a clock hand and nothing really changes except right. the appearance. But what it says is that perhaps you move the clock back and it actually changes time. But to move that clock back, you need to remove the DNA methylation. Now, of course, that, that's not sufficient. We don't think. We're testing whether it is sufficient. Um, but we do know it's necessary for the age to go back. And then the second thing you asked me, Jeff, was about do, does this prove the existence of an observer? And one of the, the experiments that convinced me was the following. Uh, so we can look at all the patterns of gene expression, which genes are on and off in, in these neurons, uh, and can look at every gene in the cells. And what we found was that genes that go down a little bit with aging, in terms of getting switched off, when we reprogram those cells, they go back up to normal, but just the right amount to where they were when they were young. Hmm. If a gene goes all the way, way down when the animal's old, it goes way up when we reprogram them. Remember, we're not telling them which genes to turn on and off and at what level. The cell somehow knows that for the whole program. Right. And so it's not mimicking an age reset. It's actually fully resetting the program at the, at the gene expression level, at one level, and the very deep level, which is the DNA methylation level. Now, there are a lot of things we don't know. We don't know how many times can you reset. Is it once, which we've done, or is it 100 times? Uh, and we don't know what tells the TET enzymes which methyls to remove and which ones to keep. Now, unlike our teeth and plaque, with our teeth, we can get rid of all the plaque and no one's, there's no problem. If we remove all the plaque off our DNA, all the methyls, 
our cells will lose their identity completely and we would become the biggest pool of stem cells. Uh, it <laughs> would basically be a tumor. That's not what's happening. We don't have mice that have tumors in their eyes. We have mice that can see again. So it's as though, you know, now another analogy would be a pianist playing 20,000 different genes. And that pianist makes some mistakes, but now we bring in a new pianist and they can play just the right notes. Right. And we're not stripping all the notes off. We're not ripping the piano off or the keys off the piano. So the observer, in my mind, has to exist. But exactly how the observer knows which of those changes to make to go back to restore the gene expression, we don't know that at all. I think there's probably a Nobel Prize up for grabs if someone wants to figure that out. Now we're giving it our best shot. <laughs> um, but in terms of philosophically, where would this lie? Where would the observer be? So it could be, and I'll tell you some of my, my best ideas. It could be a new type of DNA modification. So it's on the genome. Yep. Uh, it could be a protein that's binding to the genome when we're young that stays there for 80 years. Um, or it could be some quantum state that uh, I hope not, because that's going to take us a little longer to figure out. But it's quite possible. Yeah, it would be interesting to see how you would even measure from a quantum level, because I think that's orders of magnitude even smaller than DNA. I think that's a good evidence where methylation is not just a symptom. I think devil's advocate could say, okay, your methylation is a correlate of aging, but if you knock it out, you don't get the reversal. That definitely brings it much more closer to a causal or part of the causal uh, path of aging, which I think is interesting. And the second part, I guess when you have the Yamanaka factors, you kind of reverse into a pluripotent stem cell. Um, could one explain or have an alternate hypothesis where these stem cells are still nearby other healthy nerve cells, and it's just mimicking the healthiest versions of the cells around them? And I think this is me just speculating. I have no evidence or data to suggest that this is the right or wrong path. But in terms of an alternate explanation that doesn't require an observer, what do you make of that? I mean, I think when people just kind of generically inject stem cells into their bloodstream for anti-aging effect, and I think that's very, very spurious. No data suggests that method even works, but there are biohackers who do that. I think the most generous mechanism of action for that is that these stem cells somehow bind to areas that are somehow damaged and they mimic and, and build up you know healthy tissue there so to me that doesn't require necessarily an observer you're just mimicking nearby healthy cells and maybe there's like inflammation factors like cytokines on kind of the more damaged cells and somehow the the, the stem cells just kind of mimic the ones that are a little bit more healthier um your thoughts of why that's wrong because we've tested it we can okay. we can reprogram cells to reverse the clock and survive damage in the Petri dish where there's just one type of cell. And in the eye, we can take those retinas out and we can look at the cells and actually measure what's going on inside those cells, those neurons. And the neurons themselves have reset their age and their gene expression. It's what we would call a cell autonomous effect. So it cannot be that the eyes are relying on the stem cells because the viruses that we deliver, the gene therapy, goes to the neurons and only those neurons that get the gene therapy are the ones that get rejuvenated in your theory or your challenge to me what we should see is that it shouldn't work in the dish just with neurons and it does and it we should see that that nerve cells that don't get the virus should be equally rejuvenated but they don't rejuvenate unless they get the treatment 
into their nucleus. I see. So you're saying that in the treated neurons, essentially all of them get reversed, not just the pluripotent stem cells that differentiate themselves into a nerve cell. Right. So two adjacent nerve cells in the retina. Yeah. If one gets the treatment, the virus, which we can see, yep. we can stain it. Another one doesn't. Only this one will rejuvenate and survive and grow, and this one won't. So you're saying that even if the pluripotent stem cell tries to mimic the existing nerve cell, right? Because you have a stem cell that wants to differentiate. You're saying that like the mechanism that the stem cell wants to mimic the nerve cell wouldn't work because... Well, we don't see any replacement of cells. We can look in the eye and all of the cells that were there before are still there after the treatment. They haven't been replaced. They haven't been substituted by stem cells. It's the actual old cells that have been rejuvenated and they have to get those genes into them, into each cell for them to get younger. I see. So it, ca I it see. cannot be an influence or a replacement by other cells. So the existing cells that weren't injected by the virus that induces the Yamanaka factors also rejuvenate as well? No, they have to get the Yamanaka factors. Cells are not talking to each other or replacing each other. Each cell acts as though it's its, its own individual and we reprogram them individually. Right. Uh, because our treatment doesn't infect every neuron in the retina. I think we're getting about half of them. Okay. So you can very easily see that those ones that didn't get the treatment will die off or they're not the ones that become youthful again. Yes. So the infected or the Yamnaka induced nerve cells, you're saying that like, I would agree that those are the ones that end up being healthy. But I guess the nuance is that the challenge would be that for some reason, this pluripotent stem cells differentiate to the healthiest surrounding nerve cells. And that might be signaled through some sort of intercellular communication. And that kind of differentiates all those pluripotent stem cells to look like the healthiest of the existing, like older nerve cells. Okay, Versus, so you're saying that yeah. a stem cell could insert itself into the retina and replace a retina and grow all the way back to the brain and fuse and be functional and then get rid of all the other cells so that now the retina looks identical, but it's actually replaced itself. Yeah, the stem cells that go into the damaged area and then, and then mimic like the healthiest surrounding nerve tissue. So the nerves we see regenerate are the original nerves because we tag them with a dye so we don't see them being replaced. Um, so we can say, yeah, they're not being replaced by stem cells. And in the case of the old eye, we're not damaging anything. This is just natural aging. Okay. And there... We can reprogram those retinas. Those retinas don't look any different. They haven't changed. They haven't multiplied. There are no new cells. But the nerve cells, now we put an electrode in the back of the eye. And those nerves are now functioning with electrical signals like they were young again. And then we test the vision of the mice and they can see again. Yeah, I mean, I don't doubt that you're definitely rescuing function, right? I think that is very, very clear. I think the question it would be around exactly the mechanisms. And it sounds like you're at the forefront of teasing what that could look like. And I think a, a smoking gun clue would be around methylation, but it's probably necessary, but not sufficient definition well, we, of observer. We can reverse aging in, in, the, in the dish. So we grow human neurons and we can look at whether they are rejuvenated and they survive. And, uh, and we don't have stem cells in the dish, but those nerve cells with the treatment, the Yamanaka treatment, uh, respond to reprogramming. Okay. So it doesn't require stem cells for it to work. Yeah. So I think one of the interesting things that, you know, moving off of just on the information theory of aging here and the 
nerve cell experiments is around the Horvath clock or epigenetic clocks more broadly. But before you answer that question, let's take a quick break. Hey there, I'm Hugo, and this is my new friend, MCT oil powder from HVMN, the experts on everything keto. They came up with the most ketogenic powder on earth. You ask, why is it so special? Well, this is loaded with pure C8, the most ketogenic form of MCT, and it's just so damn delicious. My pal Chrissy from R&D here. That's me. She calls it science. I call it magical adult chocolate milk. Hey, Chrissy, why else is it so special? Oh, here we go. Thanks, Chrissy. Horvath clock or epigenetic clocks more broadly. So it's a very interesting tool that differentiates chronological age with biological age, right? And I think that's like an interesting effect. And I think there's probably a few markers that researchers use for this, right? There's more functional markers like VO2 max or functional muscle strength as predictors uh, for health span or longevity, right? These are, you know, perhaps a little bit more intuitive functions, right? The more VO2 max that correlates or associates very well with longevity. And what I think we're seeing emerging research where epigenetic clock could be used as a similar predictor, right? There's a certain patterns in the epigenetic clock or Horvath clock that, that does the same thing. Have you seen this work in all tissues? Some of my conversations with researchers suggest that like they've been looking at lean muscle tissue and they didn't see, for example, the epigenetic clock work on that specific tissue. Is there tissue-specific differences here, or does it work for universally all types of cells? Uh, well, no one can answer that question because no one's tested all types of cells. Fair enough. In my lab, we've tested many different tissues in the mouse, and Steve Horvath's tested a bunch of cells in humans. Uh, I can speak about my own research, of course, with more confidence. Uh, we've been able to make a clock every time we've tried, whether it's something as easy as a muscle skeletal muscle, lean, lean muscle mass, um, a liver, blood. More challenging was the retina, build a retina clock out of very small samples in a mouse. You can imagine you only get 10,000 cells out of that. Uh, but it worked. Now, there are a lot of ways to screw it up. I'm not suggesting those researchers you referred to screwed it up, but it wasn't easy, especially if you have low amounts of cells. You definitely have to boost the signal-to-noise ratio. For example, you can zoom in on a part of the genome that is highly repetitive and get stronger signals that way, hundredfold. Uh, and that's what we used in the eye to be able to boost that. I was skeptical of the clock, you know, because most things in aging are more variable than we want them to be, varying between month to month or individual to individual. But the clock has turned out to be surprisingly stable and, and reliable. You know, I'm happy to, to see negative data that would be useful. I'm, I'm unaware of that problem. What, I, what I've heard, again, I probably shouldn't talk about hearsay, but it's interesting because we've talked about the atomic level. If you go down to the single cell level, I'm told that you lose the clock, which makes perfect sense, actually, because the clock is an average of the methylation. You know, in the same way, you can't predict where plaque accumulates on someone's tooth. But if you measure a million teeth, you can have a pretty good idea of where it tends to accumulate. Same thing here. And so that could be an issue going forward. The fewer cells you have, the less clock you're able to see. And 
it's going to be similar, I think, to trying to map the position of an electron, where if you really try to pinpoint it, you end up with basically a probability and that's about it. Right. And uh, trying to observe it that doesn't really help you. In fact, it makes it worse. So taking an average has been very productive. I think the guys that developed the clock have really led to a great advance in the field. And what I think is probably driving the clock, and we have a couple of papers that we're working on on this, is that the disruption of the epigenome and then its reconstitution is a problem. If you do it once, it's not a problem. If you do it a thousand times over a period of a decade, then your epigenome is going to be structured informationally different than it was when you were young. One of the, I would say, most, I guess, hyped or exciting uh, interventions that reflect one of these pathways is the AMPK pathway and metformin. There's been a couple of New York Times articles describing upcoming clinical trials and some positive and interesting data around the use of metformin, which is typically a diabetes drug for anti-aging use cases. So I think one of the interesting things that I've been trying to unpack here is that, well, I would say that it's not super well known, but I'm, I'm curious if you have a stronger opinion on how metformin works. But one of the most popular explanations of why it works is that it inhibits complex one, which is part of the electron transport chain of the mitochondria. And the explanation there is that it somehow disrupts the complex one, which makes the mitochondria a little bit less efficient. And that activates AMPK because now you have a higher AMP to ATP ratio. You're producing ATP a little bit less efficiently. And this is described as a hormetic or positive effect, right? Like typically when you make something less efficient, you would think that this is a negative effect, but we explain that this could be positive because of hormesis. But I think on the other hand, if you look at some of the other literature around, for example, Parkinson's complex one inhibition seems to be one of the targets of targeting Parkinson's. So to me, it seems like there's a degree of how much you want to inhibit and how much you want to activate. And I think on one hand, if you, and it may, maybe this is because it's like squishy or fuzzy, it's like not well quantified, but how do you think about when hormesis is a good thing or when it's actually inhibiting something that's actually bad? And I think that's something that I think is perhaps missing the nuance when people talk about, oh, you know, metformin works through complex inhibition. We want to inhibit all the time. Simple story. I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Curious to hear your thoughts on that topic. Uh, Jeff, it's clear that you think more deeply than most people about it. Um, so hormesis is, uh, you know, I think it's a wonderful thing. I like to call it whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger and longer live. But that doesn't mean at all that we want to always be under this same condition. And the more we learn from studies, what we realize actually is that the body can even get used to hormesis. Right? You want to be changing things up in your daily life, in probably in supplements. And it's no surprise to me that it gets confusing because we have this standard model and a lot of books written about it that if something works, you know, to take it in the morning, if you take it three times a day, it'll work even better. You know, and that's not true. When you take it, how much you take in terms of the day and whether you're exercising, whether you've eaten, all of these things play in and it's extremely complicated. If anyone says they know the answer, they are lying or they're delusional because we don't know 
at all, really, what the best combination of these supplements is and also combination with diet and time of day. Now, I don't want listeners to think that we know nothing, right? We, we know a fair bit. There's a whole 30 years of research on this, even more. But I think as a general theme, what guides my research and also, uh, you know, what I hesitate to call self-experimentation is the theory and the belief, actually, that that our bodies uh, want to be challenged. And that's what wakes up the sirtuins, the AMPK, the mTOR, the insulin IGF-1, which is controlling mTOR. And because some of the experiments that we do in the lab have seen that, I'll give you a good example, uh, resveratrol, right? Everyone dumb that down, let's just drink lots of red wine and we'll all live longer. That's not true. For a start, you need to have a lot of resveratrol. But the other thing that's missed even by scientists, particularly those scientists who you know want to challenge my research, is that they miss the fact that we also published with Rafa de Cabo down at NIH that resveratrol given on a high-fat diet will extend lifespan. Resveratrol given on a lean diet did not extend lifespan. By the way, the amount that got into the body of those lean animals was about five-fold less of than what you get if you have a fatty meal. But what did work that is almost always ignored or intentionally or, or otherwise is that if we gave resveratrol to those lean mice every other day with their food, okay, so you're giving pulsing food and pulsing resveratrol, out of all the mice, out of all the groups, those were the ones that lived the longest, even longer than if you just gave resveratrol or intermittent fasting alone. So what does that tell me? It's very likely that it's not just what you eat, it's when you eat and in certain combinations. And so I'm, I'm at that point actually where I'm trying to discover things in my lab, discover things with my own body to try and figure out when's the best time to take things. Metformin is a good example. There's one study that says people on metformin uh, are likely to be protected from diseases of aging. And then studies that come out, which I think are really overhyped in a negative way, that taking metformin will inhibit the benefits of exercise. Exercise. Yeah. But but I was gonna I was gonna qualify because it's not all exercise, it's it's weightlifting. But if you drill down into the data there, uh, actually that all groups, metformin or without, gain muscle mass, they were all just as strong, but there was a slight difference in the size of the muscles. Okay, fine. If all you care about is the size of your muscles, don't take metformin. If you want to be just as strong and potentially be protected against cancer, heart disease, frailty, and of course diabetes, then you know, take a good look at metformin. But does that mean that you should take metformin on the same day that you exercise? Maybe not. And that's what I'm trying um, in my regimen. Yeah, I think this notion of pulsing or cycling or periodization, I think, is really interesting because I would say that around half of our conversations on this podcast talk about longevity, health span, but the other half really talks about optimization in elite athletics and sports. And it's really interesting to me because if you talk to elite physiologists and sports physiologists, they often put their athletes through cyclical training blocks in periodizing their diet against their exercise. And I think we see this manifest into potentially better performance on the athletic side, but I think that theme just rings true to me here on the health span longevity side, where there's this notion of hormesis at the right time, the right cycling and periodization of it. And it sounds like 
we're still figuring out exactly what those protocols might be for which types of folks and which types of baselines. But I, I would agree with you that that seems to be the direction to explore. You know, there's probably not likely they're just like one magic formula that works for every single person on every single lifestyle. Another interesting, I would say, a hyped up or a commonly discussed uh, pathway or compound is mTOR and rapamycin. And I want to just do like a quick blaze through of that in the sense that there was a recent news for a company called Restore Bio that was testing an mTOR inhibitor that's like a very close analog to rapamycin that unfortunately, you know, didn't make its phase three endpoint. So I'm curious from your perspective, I don't know if you have a chance to, you know, really dive into the data, but, you know, I, you know, just for me, just looking from the outside, obviously mTOR inhibition was like a big, exciting area that a lot of people have been looking at as like potentially a way to halt aging. Endpoint on respiratory illness didn't quite pan out. Are you more or less neutral on mTOR or rapalogs as a path to explore given this, you know, fairly recent new data point here? It's not as bad as it seems. Um, it's certainly bad for Restore Bio, no question. Their stock dropped 90, 89%. But there are a number of ways to inhibit mTOR. Rapamycin and rapalogs is one way. And as far as I know, there are a number of companies. There's um, Navator Bio that's working on that. Uh, Restore Bio wasn't actually working on a rapamycin analog. They were look, working on a, an upstream pathway. I believe it was an AKT inhibitor that led to downregulation of mTOR. So there are still plenty of ways to, to skin that cat, so to speak. Um, you know, it's never good when something fails because we're all hopeful that we're going to move forward, not backwards. Uh, but there's enough data on mTOR in people using rapamycin uh, that I don't think we should certainly uh, give up anytime soon. Right. And it's, rapamycin is still the most potent drug we have to extend the lifespan of animals late in life. If we can remove those side effects, then it would be a great thing for humanity. But what it shows you is that making a drug is not easy um, and you can't just extrapolate from a mouse to a human easily either. And that's why it's important that we have multiple shots on goal. And uh, that's one of the reasons that I work with a number of companies because if I just had one idea and one company, you know, it, that's pretty risky. But to spread that risk and hopefully one or more will make it, uh, but mTOR, I still think, is one of the three main pillars of aging regulation. Um, I do my best to uh, optimize mTOR, sirtuins, and AMPK in my own special way. I don't take rapamycin, though, you know, if, if I was 95, I might, but I'm still pretty healthy. But I, I think I can activate my mTOR, sorry, inhibit my mTOR using other means. So one of the interesting things to remember is all of these pathways are talking to each other. If you activate uh, sirtuins, you will inhibit mTOR. And we showed years ago that, at least in yeast, if you inhibit mTOR, you'll activate sirtuins by raising an AD. And the same is true for crosstalk between AMPK and these others. So it's not necessary, I don't think, to take rapamycin to shut down, lower your mTOR activity. And I think it also helps to not be eating a lot of branched chain amino acids as well. Right. And which is what I, I also do. Uh, but if there's a safe mTOR inhibitor that doesn't cost, you know, a thousand bucks a month, I'd certainly consider it. Yeah. And I think you touch on a, 
I think, an important point, which is that these are all interrelated, interconnected networks, right? This is definitely a systems problem. And I think the human body is so complicated that you can't just push one button and expect everything necessarily to perfectly fall in line. I mean, I think when you talk about intermittent fasting, that inhibits mTOR, that upregulates AMPK. I think some of these, I would say, best practices that a lot of people have been looking at affect the network of these metabolic pathways in kind of the right ways that you'd want them to go, right? So I think, I think when we we're looking at specific endpoints, I think it's important to, I mean, I think it's like, it's important to really sit with the overall network effects of how these things all work. Well, that's why I emphasize in my book about personalized medicine. It's not because it, you know, it's, it's a buzzword. I actually believe that the future of longevity will require devices like, like this. Yeah. Um, I love this, and I'm not an investor, so I'm, I think I can freely talk about it. The Aura Ring is one of those devices that is the future. Um, the patch that I wear here for glucose monitoring is the predecessor of future little things that will be under our skin or on a Band-Aid. And uh, right now it seems weird. You know, if I When I go to the gym, I can't tell you the number of people that give me a funny look because I've got this device stuck to the back of my arm. I'm guilty of that. I have been playing around with CGMs for the last three, four years. And yeah, just an early user of the Aura Ring as well. Yeah, people think <laughs> it's a bit weird. Yeah, but I think people are interested, right? It's like the, the cyborg future is uh, not evenly distributed. Well, as we get into this and we're, we're clearly get, we think similarly that not only is, is there a lot to still figure out, but individuals will respond differently in terms of how much, what, when. Um, the only way to know what works for you, or at least have an indication, is to measure it. Otherwise, you're flying blind, like driving without a dashboard. And I, boy, I've, I've learned a lot over the last two years. And anyone who's actually interested in their own body and is scientifically minded or an engineer, I think they would be like us. It's actually a lot of fun as well. You know, you get double bang for the buck, right? You got data that can help you be healthy. But it's also interesting. I, I love the idea that I, I wave my phone here under my arm. And you get your blood sugar. Yeah. I see what's inside my body. I've never been able to in real time graph something inside my body. And I look forward to a future when we can do that in real time and, and have you know recommendations on, on what we eat and what we're deficient in and if we have cancer coming on board. But without that, we're just relying on clinical trials on groups of people that may not even be in the same country with the same microbiome of the same sex as you and you just have to hope that it's going to work but i think that we can tailor our lifestyles and, and the way we live and the supplements based on biofeedback and biotracking you're preaching to the choir here i mean i think you identified a couple of the problems right like the randomized controlled trials in drugs i mean it's population level medicine and that probably means it'll work for the individual, but it's by no means guaranteed going to work for you specifically if the population set that's being studied is different race, different country, different lifestyle. I mean, a lot of variables there. Um, but I think the future is going to go to that direction. We're going to have real-time access to all our information, especially our biological information. It just seems like we're in the dark ages of kind of flying blindly maybe getting our annual checkup once a year for our lipid panel. And like, that's your check-in, right? And like, we know more continuous data about our computers, our house, our cars, than our own bodies. Well, yeah, you and I are living in the future, basically. Um, but soon the rest of the world will catch up as prices come down. But it, to me, it seems the world we live in right now, where you go for an annual checkup, is medieval. It's ridiculous that, and not only that, 
Uh, you only go to the doctor when you get sick. Right. Like once you're just optimistic. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll tell you an interesting thing I haven't told anybody. Uh, so I've been optimizing myself, particularly in the last few years as I've now turned 50. And I wish I started sooner because, for, you know, I can tell you I feel better than I ever have. And that's fine. You know, you can see that I have no gray hair. I've got the same amount of hair as I had when I was in my 20s. But that's all great. You know, that could just be luck. But what I've noticed is I used to get sick, you know, at least a few times a year, either in bed, I'd be stuck in bed or I'd get a cold. Um, I don't remember the last time I had a sniffle and I'm traveling and everyone around me is getting sick. And, you know, that's known to be a sign of good health and predicting longevity. And I'm, I'm really feeling it. And I think that's my best bellwether. And my father, too, he's always been resistant to diseases. And I think that is really a good sign that we often don't talk about in this longevity field. Yeah, so I know that we're running a little bit out of time here. So I want to wrap up with a final thought. I think a big portion of our book is articulating why it's not insane, but probably the most humanitarian thing to extend longevity, not just on productivity, but I think just like the human aspect that like there's so much experience that one accrues. I think one of the things I think about is like you just learn so much about being a human and then once you kind of figure out how to be a good person, you're like ready to go die. And I think it's like a, a shame because you, you built like decades of experience of how to be a good person. And then it's time to, to go on to your way. So I I think I'm like very much in line with your thinking that this is probably the, one of the highest leverage things to work on. But I'm curious to just tease into some of the potential sociological questions that we would need to update in our governance, perhaps in a future where we're living, you know, 200, 300 500 years. I mean, you know, maybe as like a final thought here, assuming that we can, you know, folks like yourself can solve this problem of aging, you know, what would you be concerned about in terms of the society and culture that we build? I think one of the things that I kind of identified or, or th was thinking about is that dying seems to just make sure that you can distribute wealth, distribute power. Right. I think the interesting thing with capitalism is that it's the winners keep accruing more and more wealth. And sometimes the clock of death forces some distribution back to other people. Yeah. With trust funds and all of that. But I'm curious, you know, assuming we solve aging, which is going to be quite challenging, what would your, be your final thoughts on things that future humans and future political leaders? to set up a society that fits this new norm? Oh, wow. There's a lot in there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in terms of redistribution of wealth, that's the easiest thing to solve. You know, changing the inheritance tax, the estate tax, or what some people have politically called the death taxes. That's easy. You can change that in a month. Solving aging is the hard part, right? So <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I'm not so worried about that. If, you know, humanity, if they can't fix taxes, then we deserve what we get. But what I think we do deserve is a chance for a healthier, longer life, as we've always done. It's just this is a new approach that people haven't thought of and one that could have a much bigger impact than addressing like what I call in the book a whack-a-mole medicine, trying to treat diseases as they come up, not realizing that what's driving all of those problems is aging in the first place. Um, so, yeah, ethically, I think it's a, the right thing to do for us. It sounds like you agree. The other thing that most people who argue this point with me uh, on a population scale, they'll say, oh, we shouldn't live longer and life isn't worth it. How much would you give for an extra two months with your mother or your father? Right. And then they go, oh, right. Yeah. 
I really want that, right? Well, how, how about another two years with your mother or your father or your grandmother who they, you know, you love? Then it's, oh, yeah, I want that. Give it to me, but don't give it to everybody. Right? <laughs> so when it's personal, you don't want your family to die. You don't want them to suffer. You don't want them to have to go into a nursing home and be spoon fed as most people end up doing. And uh, so it's very different when you talk about your own family. It's going to require changes the same way that 100 years ago, we didn't have retirement. We didn't have weekends. We, it, was, it was a horrible, brutish uh, kind of world. And go back 100 years before that, even worse. And none of us would go back to that world, even though we've had to change. We've had to work longer parts of our lives. Uh, but the bonus is that you get to be healthy and relatively wealthy. And you have a retirement. And you have weekends. Because the world is wealthier when people are healthier, right? It's a virtuous cycle. And when you're wealthier, you get healthier. But health is the core of what's driven us out of the Middle Ages. And uh, that's also true for the developing world where as they become healthier, vaccines and other things, um, antibiotics, they're having fewer children. They're not, you know, living a brutish life. And I think they wouldn't want to go back to this short life either. Um, So I think that we also have a responsibility ethically to take care of ourselves. I'm not just selfishly trying to stay young and healthy. I'm a little bit more motivated because now people are watching me and seeing how I do over the next few decades. (laughs) And it's kind of a game. But really what makes me happy about doing that is the realization that my kids may not have to look after me in a decrepit state. And hopefully I'll die very quickly at an advanced old age and not be a burden to them and be very productive throughout my life. I don't plan on retiring anytime soon. And then finally, you know, things that will have to change. We're, we're going to have to change the retirement age. We're going to have to look at social security, though I do believe, and I've done the calculations with a, an economist, that the medical healthcare costs of the country will go down enough to easily pay for, for social security. But we can't retire halfway through our lives, which is what we're heading towards, actually. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to give people incentives to start new careers. Even if it's nonprofit work, they have to be some productive members of society taking care of grandkids or whatever. And if you've been busting roads and doing a horrible job that no one would really want to do, uh, and there are a lot of jobs like that, we're privileged, you and I, to do what we do. Yeah. You know, you w- wouldn't want them to have to do that for even longer, but give them a chance to do what they always dreamed of, learn guitar, learn a language, start a company, that kind of thing. And with a longer life, you can do that. I think we're all looking for that future where we can have that time, that luxury to be healthy and have that time with our loved ones and our personal desires and and personal ambitions and personal goals. So thank you so much for taking the time here. I know you're a busy man, so appreciate the time. And we'll have to continue the conversation at some point. I mean, I think plenty of more material to go through, but again, a wonderful conversation. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was really great uh, conversation and great questions. And I'll come back on. All right. Thanks so much. If you're interested to learn more about HVMN, visit www.hvmn.com slash pod. Thank you for tuning in.